The time is now 6 p.m. Welcome to WORT's local news for Wednesday, February the 14th, 2024. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. In tonight's news, a new website is tracking Madison bus delays over time and making that information available to the public. The spring primary is this coming Tuesday, and one candidate running for Dane County Board says it's time to prioritize middle-income housing. And in the second half, an international conversation about the arts, some headlines from 55 years ago, and the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on South Bedford Street in beautiful downtown Madison. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way. Here are the headlines for this evening. Yesterday, Republican state lawmakers advanced a series of proposals that would cut taxes. The cuts would use part of Wisconsin's record surplus to cut taxes by $2 billion in the next fiscal year and about $1.4 billion per year after that. Lawmakers in the state assembly approved the series of cuts. The proposals now head on to the state Senate, where Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMahieu has indicated support. Sorry, Devin LeMahieu. It's unclear if Governor Evers does. Evers has said that he is open to tax cuts for the middle class, but he has not commented on specific bills currently moving through legislation, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. Republicans introduced the plan two weeks ago. One of the bills greatly expands the second tax bracket to include higher earners. Other bills in the package increase the tax credits for married couples and for child care, and would also make more retiree income exempt from state income tax. Voting on each of the bills in the package has mostly gone along party lines, although the tax credit for child care passed by a wide 92-4 to 4 margin. The two tornadoes that swept across southern Wisconsin last week were the first in Wisconsin history to touch down in February. Total damage from the storms is currently estimated at nearly $2.5 million, according to the Rock County Sheriff. The tornadoes, which tracked for more than 30 miles between them, destroyed at least two homes entirely and damaged as many as 31 others, according to the Wisconsin Journal Sentinel, excuse me, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. There will be a community gathering at the Evansville High School for people affected by the tornadoes tomorrow at 6 p.m. 41 states restrict the shackling of pregnant women who are incarcerated during their labor and delivery. But Wisconsin is one of the few states where shackling a woman giving birth, or in the days after, is entirely legal. The Coalition of Democratic Lawmakers, though, have introduced a bill that would set more conditions on when restraints can be used during birth and recovery. Lead authors on the bill include Madison-area lawmakers Kelda Royce, Melissa Agard, and Diane Hesselbein. Under the proposal, pregnant women serving time could only be placed in restraints if they're required to prevent escape or injury. Uh, the shackles are used in the least restrictive manner, and a doctor signs off, uh, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. The medical community, from the American College of OBGYNs to the American Medical Association, largely opposes the practice of shackling, reports NPR. 
That's because shackling can hinder a doctor's ability to give care to a pregnant person in an emergency situation, such as when they need to be transferred to an operating room. Pregnant people can also face blood clots and a higher risk of injury from falling when shackled. The bill would also provide new services for expectant mothers and ban placing pregnant women in solitary confinement. Last night, city finance leaders presented Madison Alders with a bleak financial projection, a structural deficit, debt incurred under previous administrations, increasing interest rates, a lack of income during the pandemic, and a shared revenue formula for distributing state money that places Madison at the bottom of the pack. All those factors combined mean that the city's electeds have some tough choices to make this year. During a more than two-hour presentation last night, City Finance Director Dave Schmidtke walked Alders through an array of possible options to get the city through the next budget. State law heavily restricts how municipalities can raise their cash. So one option is simply for the city to significantly curtail services in the 2025 budget. Another is to place a referendum on the ballot this fall asking voters to approve an increase in property taxes above the normal maximum limit set by the state. Other options like fees and charge increases could then help keep the budget in the black. And ultimately, the city will likely need to use a range of approaches to balance the budget in 2025. But Madison Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway is asking Alders to pick a direction soon. That's as city division heads gear up to present their budget asks for 2025 in the next month or two. The council is expected to take up a discussion about these options at a meeting in three weeks on March 5th. If Alders opt to recommend that the city pursue a referendum, they need to approve it by late August to be ready in time for the November election. Meanwhile, in neighboring Fitchburg, a plan to approve additional funding for a new police training facility failed at a meeting that stretched into the early morning. The controversial project drew hundreds of attendees, and many public speakers were opposed to the project. Ultimately, the move to approve an additional $11 million for a standalone facility failed by a narrow 4-3 vote. That sends the project's design team back to the drawing board to come up with a new design that fits within the $35 million already budgeted and approved for the project. The new police training facility would replace Fitchburg's current police station in the basement of City Hall, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Opponents say the project's price tag for a city of roughly 30000 could be better invested elsewhere in the community. Supporters of the police training facility point to the need for a modern facility and for the department to move out of the cramped quarters in City Hall. They say it would remove the need for Fitchburg police officers to rely on the facilities of nearby municipalities to help train its officers. The Eastside Printer, formerly known as Webcrafters, will shut down their Madison plant after more than 150 years in operation, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. The shutdown is expected to lay off more than 100 workers beginning this April, and the plant is expected to shutter in June. In 2017, Webcrafters was bought by the CJK Group, a Minnesota-based portfolio with international operations and renamed as Sheridan, Wisconsin. Sheridan representatives have indicated that their sales have declined in recent years due to a move to digital books and book publishers moving their businesses outside the U.S. 
In yesterday's story on the Madison Metropolitan School District superintendent search, we erroneously reported that the school board is delaying their decision. They are moving forward with their original timeline and plan to announce the new superintendent late this month or early next month. Yesterday's press conference was held in order to keep the public updated on the hiring process, and the district did not publicize any new information. However, they did field questions about one of the three candidates, Mohammed Chaudhry. A recent article from Isthmus newspaper unearthed allegations that he created a toxic work environment while superintendent for Maryland's State Department of Education. According to a representative with the district's consulting firm, they want to understand each candidate's accomplishments as a whole rather than focusing on one fragment of their career. And those were the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. A new website is tracking Madison bus delays over time and making that record available to the public. According to the man behind the program, buses are becoming more reliable, but some routes still occasionally run way behind schedule. Our producer, Faye Parks, has the story. A lot of my friends take the C line and the B line, which since the redesign have been like some of the worst routes in terms of reliability. I've missed a couple of doctor's appointments because of it. That was Doug Meyer, a programmer in the Madison area. Last November, he set up a website, myprecioustime.com, that tracks Madison bus delays over time. There, you can view graphs that compile every route's average delay, maximum delay, and percentage on time, and then compare that information to the past. Meyer says he noticed the need for a historical record of delays, especially as Madison's bus system changes. It was really helpful to quantify how bad things were and how much they've been improving over time. One such change is this summer's transit network redesign, which, according to Metro spokesperson Mick Roosh, did cause some buses to run behind. Everything was designed, you know, on paper, but it wasn't until you get it out on the street that you can actually see how things are working and how things are operating. So we knew it wasn't going to be perfect when we launched in June. Metro Transit made changes to some routes last December in order to address some of those systemic flaws. We added some buses to the Route B specifically. That was one of our routes that was behind a great deal. So we added an extra bus to that. And then we also actually looked at each trip as it was heading through the campus area. That's where a lot of our delays were happening. And we scheduled extra time into those trips. Meyer says he programmed his bus delay tracker after learning of those planned changes, wanting to verify if the delays actually improved. He says that since then, most buses have been running on time. And when I say on time, I mean like plus or minus five minutes from the schedule that Metro Transit has. At least that's their own definition of it based on what I've seen. So the main trends that I've noticed is on average, more trips have been more reliable going forward. And I call that like the percent that have been on time. Some of the max possible delays, you know, like buses being late by an hour, that seems like it's still kind of happening, but it definitely seems like it's been less frequent based on the data that I've seen. And Roosh says that Metro Transit is now running more reliably, even though staffing and weather issues have caused them to send out multiple alerts, delaying or canceling service in recent months. When we had all that snow and all that ice, 
we our uh, our monthly on-time performance did go down a little bit in January, but we think we, the schedules are right where they need to be, and we're looking forward to having a good spring and having things working out pretty well. On January 12th, according to Myers' delay tracker, a bus on the D route was 87 minutes late. On February 4th, the maximum delay on Route D was down to 50 minutes. According to Roosh, those occasional hour delays happen when they have to cancel a trip. If we don't have enough drivers that are in the building, if too many people call in sick that day, we're working on getting that all straightened out. We don't have that happen too often anymore. Earlier today, Metro Transit held a press conference to discuss some upcoming changes to usher in bus rapid transit, which is scheduled to launch this coming August. That includes a new facility that's officially under construction. And basically we're getting 62 60-foot electric buses. They're about one and a half times the size of our current buses. Those buses have doors in the front, in the middle, and the rear. So when they go to our BRT stops, people can board on all three doors. These buses themselves, once they're on BRT, they're actually going to interact with traffic signals and they're going to work with and keep green lights longer so that buses can keep going and, and not be behind. Also this summer, Metro Transit is planning to implement new fare technology on BRT lines so riders can pay at any entrance with a tap card. Roosh also says that Metro Transit is going to start posting their own delay records online this coming year. Meyer says such records are important because frustrated bus riders can point to actual data that backs up their experience. I don't think it necessarily helps like planning trips and things like that, but it's really useful from an advocacy perspective. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Can heat from treated wastewater warm homes? A collaboration in Duluth, Minnesota is giving it a shot. They're repurposing warm water discharged from a local plant to heat homes in a low-income neighborhood. Dr. Anthony Lisowitz of Yale's Climate Connections has the story. I'm Dr. Anthony Lisowitz, and this is Climate Connections. In Duluth, Minnesota, millions of gallons of warm, treated wastewater are discharged into the St. Louis River each day. Right now, the effluent temperature coming out of the end of the process is about 90 degrees. So there's a huge amount of waste heat there. Jody Slick is with Ecolibrium 3, a nonprofit based in Lincoln Park, the largely low-income neighborhood where the wastewater plant is located. Her group, along with the city and other partners, is working on a plan to harness that waste heat and use it as a source of energy. They've received a $700,000 federal grant to design the project. The system would use pumps to distribute heat from the wastewater through a network of underground pipes, providing the main heat source for hundreds of homes in the neighborhood. A few similar systems are already in use in Finland, Denmark, and China. Slick says she's excited about using the approach in the U.S., where wastewater treatment plants are often located in low-income communities that are exposed to a disproportionate number of environmental hazards. We have the possibility of opening up a brand new energy source that turns what has often been considered an environmental justice burden into a benefit for these neighborhoods. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. The 2024 spring election is ramping up. In terms of local elections, the big races on the ballot are for Dane County Board of Supervisors. 
Only two Dane County board seats have more than two candidates, so that means they are first headed to a spring primary this coming Tuesday, February 20th. The top two finishers from the primary will move on to the spring election on April 2nd. This week, we're taking a look at District 36, where the current supervisor, State Senator Melissa Ratcliffe, has decided not to run for another term. Now, three candidates are vying to take on the job and represent the village of Cottage Grove, as well as portions of East Madison and Sun Prairie. Those candidates are Andrew McKinney, Laureen Gage, and David Peterson. Earlier this week, our producer, Faye Park, spoke to David Peterson to hear his priorities for District 36. Thank you for joining me, David. Good to be here. Thanks for having me, Faye. So to start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your background and what are your qualifications to serve on the Dane County Board? I've been on the Cottage Grove Village Board. I'm on my second term right now and done a lot of good work there. I'm also the chair of the ADRC Governing Board. It's one of the county committees. Do a lot of good work there. Uh, my middle son, Cole, is autistic, and so that's what brings me to the ADRC and creating equitable opportunities for all. Also, very engaged with the Autism Society of South Central Wisconsin. A lot of Autism 101 presentations, and just overall, just generally try to help and contribute to my community any way I can and keeps us busy and just interested in doing more with the county and having a greater impact. So it sounds like you're pretty plugged in there in District 36 and the Cottage Grove area. What are some of your priorities for that district if you were to join the county board? One of the big things, not only in this district, but also in the county as as a whole, housing is a really, really big deal. You know, we just don't have enough housing uh, (laughs) in our county. You just can't add enough housing, not only in the county, but also in the district as well. So when I first got on the village board, I was appointed to the the ad hoc housing committee and I learned an awful lot about housing and I continue to learn more and more. And so housing is a really big one. And and a lot of times within the county and I talk to voters, you know, all over the county, especially all over the state, but here locally, you know, a lot of times we're either thinking they're either single family homes or they're, you know, monstrous planned five, six, eight hundred thousand unit developments. And I'm a big believer in missing middle housing. And so things like condos and townhomes and duplexes and triplexes. And I want to use every tool in the toolbox to try to solve our housing crisis and work with not only the city of Madison, but also, you know, villages like Cottage Grove, uh, but then also the towns as well, because the towns want to be part of the solution as well. And there's things that we can do. There's tools in our toolbox that can help us keep the rural feel in towns, but also help with the housing crisis as well. And I, I really want to contribute there. Some of the other things too, economic development and fiscal responsibility kind of go hand in hand. In a lot of ways, we are bringing Amazon to, to Cottage Grove, and that's a, that's a huge bolster to the community. And so I'm, I want to continue to do that, again, at a greater scale at the county. Fiscal responsibility, again, is huge for me. We've been creating budgets that are mindful of the growth that we need here in the village, but we also need to keep taxpayers' needs in mind as well. So like, there's a, there's a lot of things you need to do to juggle there. Public safety is huge for me. I've been on the fire commission my entire time on the village board and feel really strongly that we need to make sure that we give our fire departments, our EMS, and our police all the tools they need to, to help keep us safe and keep themselves safe. And then lastly, kind of a bit of a passion project for me, biking and walking infrastructure. I worked at Trek Bikes for a long time, and, you know, I, I feel very strongly about the Glacial Drumlin Trail should connect to Madison. And further I, across the county, I want to improve our infrastructure. We have some of the greatest biking and walking trails in the country. I might be a little biased, but especially for biking, biking is a simple solution to a complex problem. And I want to make it easier for a variety of reasons for people to bike around the county. And so that's a huge passion project of mine. And I also know that criminal justice reform is a big talking point this year. What is your perspective on that? 
you know, it, it goes without saying, right? The data is clear here that there there is definitely racial differences here in terms of the incarcerated individuals right here. And so we want to work with a variety of things. Like for for example, on the peer court steering committee here in the village, we work with Briar Patch. Briar Patch is a nonprofit that that works with the county to provide services like restorative justice services. So there's partnerships like that that we can continue to grow and maintain, but also there's other partnerships that we can do across the county. And I think that's a that's a huge aspect that, that in order to affect change here on the inequalities that I think we need to work with, you know, a variety of community voices and nonprofits and listen from all viewpoints. And, and again, coming from District 36, we certainly have, a, have an opinion here and, and want to help listen to other voices. And I think that's one way to do that. I think also, too, the jail project is an interesting one. It's, it's definitely politically charged and it gets people on both sides of the argument fired up. But I think that the, the county went and did a really good thing about contributing more budget-wise to that project. And I think you know, for anyone that's, that's toured the current jail, uh, it's woefully inadequate and we need to do something there. And I think for many voters that I've talked to, you know, no one wants to incarcerate people, but at the same time, when people do things, we want to make sure that they have a safe place to go to and, and that things, you know, justice is served. So we want to make sure that the jail project continues and, and provide the funding. We want to see that project through to fruition. And I think that will, will also help with some of the inequalities we see today. So meanwhile, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi's retirement is around the corner. What are your thoughts on that race? And should you win a seat on the Dane County Board? How do you plan to navigate that transition? When you get into politics, sometimes you learn on the job, right? And so I think this one's an interesting race. I've met with Regina. I've known Melissa for a long time, and I'm just getting to know Dana. And so this is an interesting race. I think I'll be interested to see if others throw their hat in the ring to that race. And I think right now I'm still kind of in fact-finding mode uh, to try to understand. Again, I, I've known Melissa for a lot longer, but... Uh, how to navigate that. I'm still kind of learning that as I go, right? I think that it'll be interesting to see how things transpire through the spring and into the summer. We'll see what happens. I think that covers all of my questions, but is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I appreciate the time today. I think I'm I'm really excited about the prospects here and, and really excited about the, the future that holds for District 36. I think we're one of the fastest growing parts of the county and I'm, I'm excited to see where things go and I'd love to have, have an input and help where things go. And uh, again, really appreciate the time today. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, David. Thanks. That was David Peterson, one of three candidates in the race to represent District 36 on the Dane County Board. District 36 includes the village of Cottage Grove, as well as portions of East Madison and Sun Prairie. Peterson says, should he win the race, he plans to address the dearth of affordable housing in Cottage Grove and promote economic development. We'll hear from one of his opponents, Lorraine Gage, later this week. The third candidate, Andrew McKinney, declined WORT's request for an interview. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I am your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us this evening. In this archival edition of Framing Culture, feature contributor Jose Carlos Texera travels to his home country, Portugal, and sits down with Joy Hanford. Hanford is an American artist, ceramicist, community coordinator, and writer. Infused with lively humor, their conversation reflects on broader issues around art, craft, entrepreneurship, and cultural specificities and differences. 
Framing Culture. Hello, good evening. In this edition of Framing Culture, I am in Guimarães, a city in the northern part of Portugal, and I am in front of Atelier Retiro. Hi! Olá! Bem-vindo! Hello! Welcome! Come on in! Hello, Joy. How are you? I'm great! José, how are you? I'm great. So I really wanted to come to visit you in your wonderful project. So for those at home or driving your cars who don't know, Joy Hanford is a wonderful friend and a very talented artist, educator and community organizer. And so I would like you to talk about this wonderful project, life project that you have here. Yeah. Atelier Retido is my atelier. It's my studio where I work and I invite my community to come here and also work. We work a lot in clay. We have a lot of other community outreach programs, art programs, meetings. Uh, we call them tortulias, where like talks, artist talks, debates. We also have a lunch club here. It's a community center. A lot of people come when it's raining to get out of the rain because retido means a refuge, a retreat, a place that you can escape to. And it was really fortuitous that I found a perfect art studio space on a street named Retreat. So Joy, as I walk with you in this very cozy and very industrious space, I want you to tell us more about how do you arrive in Portugal? Like, as a summary, how does it happen? A Midwestern mm -hmm. comes to Portugal and years later starts this wonderful space. I'm a Midwestern girl I'm from all over the Midwest, Illinois, uh, Elkhorn, Wisconsin, Baraboo. I lived in Indiana, I lived in Ohio, I lived in Kentucky, I've lived all over. And then I went to a party and I met this Portuguese grad student and <laughs> found myself unfortunately bitten by the love bug. And I came on over, um, I started coming part-time in 2005. I immigrated to Portugal in 2010 and I opened my community pottery studio in 2020. Did you always have this idea that you'd come to Europe, that you'd open a space, a community place like this, or it's something that sort of emerged in you as you start sort of figuring out the next steps in Europe? 100% always thought I would open a community pottery studio or have a pottery studio. Um, I am an artist first and foremost, but my medium has not always been clay, but has I've always been passionate in clay. So I was very lucky that I used to run a community pottery studio in Indiana University. It was a community studio. It did not have to do with the academic program. It was for the community. It was in the union, the student union, and it was a hundred year old pottery studio. And it was such a pleasure to be the resident potter there and the community coordinator there and we also had dark rooms and we had drawing classes and so it was something that I always knew I would get back to but with all things in immigration nothing is easy and it took me 10 years to get back in I did a lot of ethnographic pottery here in Portugal I worked in the museums I did a lot of writing I did a lot of travel writing and a lot I used to work in the textile industry as well and all of this has influenced my work now which has been really wonderful but it just took time to build up the research resources again to open a community pottery studio and I'm just very grateful and lucky to be doing this work for a second time. 
you know, it's, it's a fascinating process, but it's also one made of struggles to be in a foreign country trying to open a project like this. So tell me, I want to go in a second more in depth about your artwork, but how do you compare, if you can compare, the pottery sort of community studio that you had back in America and this one with a different culture, with a different set of goals probably? How do you compare the both and what is the energy that you can get from both places and from both cultures? The culture behind a community art studio in the United States is quite open. It's not a new concept. In Portugal, a hobby aspect or a, we say passatempo, a pastime in the arts outside of painting, drawing, or photography is not something that they are used to. It has always existed. I'm not saying it's, it's but it's not in the lexicon, if you will. Mm-hmm. Whereas in America or let's say England, Scotland, etc., another culture, another place outside of the United States, you have that aspect of, I'm having a hard time. I'm going to take a pottery class. I don't know what I'm doing with myself. I'm going to take a pottery class. I'm divorced. I'm going to take a pottery class. I'm sad. I'm going to take a pottery class. So, so it becomes this sort of therapeutical, cathartic yeah, process sure. with your hands. Yes. Uh, working in clay because we all throughout humanity have worked in clay. It's the oldest art form and it was our first industrial product, ceramics. So outside of those two things, we have a really, in a different way, and I think it comes straight out of the new contemporary arts movement post-World War II, we have a whole different aspect, especially in the United States, on craft as craft is vocation. But craft can be elevated to a high art. Mm -hmm. That high art has value and merit, whether it be therapeutic or as a product, an art product to purchase and collect, just like you would a painting. Exactly. And, and and that's actually super important that you're mentioning that because as we previously discussed and we share about these important topics, what is fascinating and I think very valuable about projects like yours in Guimarães, in northern Portugal or in other, in other locations is the fact that there is or there has been a tendency to divide what you consider high mm-hmm. or more conceptual art and the crafts. But if you go back, of course, in time to a reality called uh, Bauhaus, you realize that these two things were actually not necessarily disconnected. So Yes, and that comes straight out of the movement that I was talking about before, the post-World War II movement. So um, when the Bauhaus decided to disband because they did not want to support the political and totalitarian regime that was developing around them and already existed. A lot of them immigrated and brought great ideas to the United States specifically. I studied a long time in North Carolina at Penland School of Crafts and a a lot of those instructors came straight from Black Black Mountain College. And so I have always been raised with this idea that as long as you reach a master level in any field with a creative bend you are an artist you are a fine art artist it has no delineation between the two which Mm -hmm. was a Bauhaus idea Mm -hmm. and coming to Portugal it's very different because they don't have that that doesn't exist Uh, pottery is factory work Mm -hmm. weaving is factory work Uh, embroidery is just what you do it's you know a lot a lot of these things that have modern crafts movements outside of Portugal are only now getting to have that creative bend here I am considered an artisan or a craftsperson. Uh, it's very hard to explain my passionate respect for what I do and that it's art first, craft last. I think things are changing though. Yes. Things, the labor is being rescued to a higher, more elevated place. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy that uh, you are doing this work because 
it's expanding oh. and it's going to uh, and it's probably it's already inspiring others. You mm-hmm. can only say that. Yes. Oh, well, that's very kind. Like I said before, uh, community pottery suits have existed. Mine is not the first. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an open business plan. Uh, it's been around since post-war, definitely. And before, if you look at places like Penland and other craft schools that always had this ability. Specifically here, uh, I worked in the Museum of Systems in Guimarães in ethnographic pottery and trained in um, a specific form of pottery that is dying out. It's a decorative form of pottery called the Cantarines dos Numbrados. And when I trained in that, it was to make sure it doesn't die. While we dive deeper into your own practice, if you could come up with some major concepts and ideas that drive what you do, what would those be? I believe the main theme of my work is legacy. My last body of work is all focused on the urban decay of the city that I'm living in. My city is a very fast, gentrifying city. I'm very inspired by this historic medieval city center of Guimarães and the urban decay that is being washed away. And I'm trying to preserve that. Um, and most of my work is about legacy. It's about honoring the time and the million little steps all of the days that led to the day that the thing was made have as much value as the object thank you so much thank you jose carlos teixeira you and it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with wort weather guru rob mcclure Well, another beautiful day. This one just passed 46 degrees for a high temperature, uh, much more like mid-March, even late March than mid-February. And indeed, the entire month of February has been more like March so far, almost 14 degrees above normal as we approach mid-month now. (coughs) Pardon me. So after such a lovely day, and after uh, more than three weeks now since we last saw measurable snow, it may shock you to wake up tomorrow to re-whitened ground, uh, possibly even with a good few inches down at that, especially if you're listening in a location somewhere from Madison on north. We've seen the system set to produce this snow on the forecast models for several days now, and the system's timing, uh, that is in the wee hours of tomorrow morning, has remained remarkably constant through that time. What has changed, or at least become clearer since the short-range high-resolution models began to analyze this little storm yesterday, is both how quickly it will intensify as it comes over us from tonight from the west, and by just what mechanisms its precipitation is going to be produced and where it's going to fall, that uh, where question is still somewhat unsettled, but the hourly iterations of the high-res models are focusing on a west-to-east corridor through about northern Dane County uh, or roughly around the Wisconsin River, uh, northward into Richland and Sauk and Columbia counties, but possibly for a north-south distance of only about 10 or 20 miles. So a narrow corridor indeed, and that uh, band has shifted southward on some of the models on the most uh, very recent run. So it is possible that the heaviest snow may end up just a little southward down towards the area just north of Madison. Estimating how much snow is going to end up on the ground is actually quite a difficult task. The ground has been warming up, of course, over the past few weeks, promoting perhaps more melting than we'd otherwise see this time of year. 
And initial air column temperatures through about the first mile above ground level may be somewhat marginal for snow production uh, for an hour or two at the beginning of this. And the entire snow event's only going to last about six or seven hours. So all of those are factors kind of mitigating against deeper totals. On the other hand, even though this will be a fast-moving system, a briefly coupled upper jet up above us will assist in producing stout upward motion through the second and third miles above ground level, a region in which the air column will be saturated and at a good temperature for producing dendritic ice crystals that stack up quite efficiently. So some intense snowfall rates are possible as are quick accumulations as we get out between about 2 and 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. Uh, and perhaps in a range, uh, as far as the snowfall rates are concerned, up in the one to two per inch per hour rate. Uh, as a result, a narrow corridor of perhaps as much as six inches may lay out across areas that I mentioned just north of Madison. Accumulations will drop rapidly to the south, so while Madison may end up, say, with an inch or two tomorrow morning, uh, areas down in the southern tier of counties will mostly see rain overnight with perhaps some sleety precipitation mixed in as well. Uh, if you have a look at the water vapor image of the continental U.S. that we have linked up on the WORT weather webpage this evening, you can spot the V-shaped upper wave with this system currently out over western Nebraska with a developing ring of closed surface isobars to its southeast over Kansas. That surface circulation is going to fly eastward across northern Illinois over just the coming next 12 hours or so, uh, transforming our bare ground into something more winter-like in the process. Colder air will push in behind this system tomorrow, but a more Arctic-level cold uh, will only begin to filter southward after a second wave passes uh, over southern Illinois on Friday. So that should keep temperatures confined to the mid-20s on Saturday. But uh, back to tonight, the skies will continue to thicken downward fairly quickly from the passing high clouds that are out there at the moment with uh, rain, light rain anyway, and some mixed precipitation starting to move eastward into the area sometime after midnight, probably shortly after midnight. Areas north of Madison should change to all snow fairly quickly with an intense few hours of snowfall following. That's going to slick up the roads really fast in case you're planning to travel overnight. Uh, the snow will be especially uh, fast uh, falling quickly from about northern Dane County up through central Sauk and Columbia counties. Temperatures will drop to the low 30s on southerly winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour, backing northeast and, north, uh, and then northwest through the night. Snow will exit east quickly tomorrow morning with, again, perhaps 4 to 6 inches in a narrow cor uh, corridor up to our north, but uh, maybe just an inch or two here in Madison and less to the south. Northwesterly winds will increase to about 10 to 17 miles per hour with some gustiness, especially as the skies begin to clear through the mid midday and afternoon hours. Temperatures will hold in the low 30s and drop to the low 20s overnight as high clouds reinvade and northwesterly winds come down to about 5 to 10 miles per hour. And Friday is going to generally be overcast, mostly with high and mid-level clouds. This will be thicker to the south and thinner to the north. The temperatures will hold in the upper 20s as northwesterly winds again start to increase to 10 to 15 miles per hour. And those northwesterly winds will stay pretty brisk overnight as the temperatures drop off into the low or mid-teens uh, with some clearing of the skies. And Saturday should be partly sunny and still pretty brisk with the northwesterly winds up at 12 to 18 miles per hour and again somewhat gusty. Temperatures will reach the upper 20s or perhaps slightly warmer where the ground remains bare. 
The winds will be backing more west and southwest later Saturday and overnight and into Sunday, leading to slightly warmer temperatures on Sunday back up in the low 30s. It is currently 43 degrees down here at the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 25. Winds are currently south at 9 miles per hour. Uh, skies are overcast up at about 14,000 feet, though we do have some passing cloud cover beneath. And uh, the barometer is at 30.05 inches of mercury and falling slowly. We go now to the second week of February 1969 for the dramatic events of the Black Studies strike. Stu Levitan has the news from 55 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, February 1969, The Black Studies Strike, Part 2. Inspired by the UW Symposium entitled The Black Revolution, To What Ends, and challenged by San Francisco State Professor Nathan Hare to take radical steps, the Black People's Alliance started a strike for the Black Studies Department on Friday, February 7th. That gave them all weekend for rallies and actions. Saturday afternoon, BPA leader Willie Edwards tells a large Great Hall crowd that, quote, the only power we have is to disrupt, and if their demands are not met, quote, this university will not function. After the rally, approximately 600 students march on the field house to disrupt the Badger basketball game with Ohio State, many chanting, two, four, six, eight, organize and smash the state. Alerted by agents at the rally, the university calls in city police. A contingent of about 150 helmeted police with riot sticks and tear gas arrives barely five minutes before the protesters. If they had not arrived at the fieldhouse when they did, Chancellor Edwin Young tells the regents the following Friday, quote, 600 persons would have poured into that basketball game and there would have been a great deal of violence between spectators and disruptors. As it is, there are scuffles at various fieldhouse gates, and Governor Warren Knowles' black rambler is vandalized. Four students, one black, three white, are arrested for disorderly conduct and battery to a police officer. Most of the 11,000 basketball fans inside are unaware of the disturbance. Edwards and about two dozen blacks have tickets and are inside, but their only disruption is giving the black power salute during the national anthem and some synchronized seat-switching. They leave after halftime to scattered applause and miss sophomore guard Clarence Sherrod leading the Badgers to an upset victory over the Buckeyes. That night, Chancellor Young issues a statement highlighting the university's initiatives, including efforts to recruit minority faculty, adding one more black staff member to the Student Affairs Office, and seeking further funding. Young touts recent changes in the university's academic program, the first three-credit Afro-American Cultural and Intellectual Tradition course in the new Afro-American Concentration in the American Institutions program with a series of guest lecturers, a black history course, and a black literature course taught by a black professor, a law school seminar on law and minority groups, 
and poet Gwendolyn Brooks's one-semester creative writing course. It would be a tragedy if anything were allowed to cloud this progress and threaten the future, Young says, and warns that anyone obstructing classes or other university activities is subject to arrest for unlawful assembly. Students who do so may also get suspended or expelled. While peaceful picketing and legal protest must and will be protected on this campus, Young declares, intentional disruption of classes cannot and will not be tolerated. The WSA Student Senate votes on Sunday to support the strike, provide bail money for arrestees, and condemn indiscriminate violence. The WSA releases a report by WSA President David Goldfarb and Marjorie Tabankin, co-organizer of the Black Revolution Symposium, calling the university, quote, a racist institution whose only response has been manipulation, avoidance, and co-optation. The WSA report concludes with a call for, quote, all students to mobilize in a united front to strike against the racism endemic in this institution. The BPA's Libby Edwards tells about 150 students at the Green Lantern Eating Cooperative that, quote, disruption will take place, but the tactics must remain secret. The week of February 10th starts peacefully, with about 1,500 picketing, but not obstructing, major classroom buildings. Classes continue, with strikers entering some classrooms and asking for permission to address the students. Chancellor Young issues another statement, calling for, quote, an atmosphere of reasoned cooperation and mutual concern. No one who talks about shutting down the university can convince me that the welfare and advancement of black people is his foremost concern. At night, a thousand rally on the mall, then climb the hill to Bascom Hall. Amid shouts of, burn, baby, burn, demonstrators burn an effigy of university administrators in Abraham Lincoln's lap. Then they march to the Capitol, filling nearly three city blocks, their number augmented by many high school students. After a Tuesday morning mall rally for a thousand, an uptick in intensity. A few hundred protesters walk through buildings chanting, On strike! Shut it down! They don't attract any adherents and leave when police arrive. But a few hours later, around the same time the state Senate is unanimously adopting a resolution denouncing, quote, the wanton destruction, illegal activity, and disruption of our universities by revolutionaries and their supporters, black leaders tell the thousand or so at a Union Theater rally of a new tactic, a non-penetrable picket line, people standing in the schoolhouse doors of the College of Letters and Sciences to block anyone from getting in. And when police come to make like steam and vaporize. And they do. Some form the first affinity groups, linking up and linking arms. Some fistfights break out between students blockading buildings and those attempting to enter, but the lines generally hold, and hundreds leave or are turned away. Groups in the hundreds have effectively seized control of several university buildings, when close to 200 city and county officers sweep up the hill. The students blocking building entrances withdraw at their approach, but several hundred are already occupying Bascom Hall hallways, which they continue to do until police clear and close the building about 4.15 p.m. After that, police form a line in front of the building and endure abusive shouts from a mob of 2,000, many of whom pelt them with snowballs as they later retreat. 
Wednesday afternoon, an overflow crowd of 1,500 at a Union Theater rally cheer as black leaders urge them to close down the university. Afterward, hit-and-run strikes by strikers escalate. They block and occupy more buildings for more than three hours, even briefly blocking Van Hyes, which houses President Fred Harvey Harrington's office. There are several minor injuries, most coming when some of the 200 anti-strike Hayakawas, named after the strike-breaking president of San Francisco State, and including members of the Young Americans for Freedom, Sigma Epsilon Phi fraternity, and some football players, battle blockaders on the line. Three buses are vandalized on their campus routes, and traffic is so badly disrupted that the Madison Bus Company shuts down campus bus service for two hours. Police make several arrests, including of the only football player supporting the strike, black freshman Harvey Clay, who later loses his scholarship and goes home to Texas. With city and county law enforcement unable to maintain this pace or scope of response, Mayor Otto Feske and the university leadership ask Governor Knowles to call out the Wisconsin National Guard, which he does a little after 3 o'clock that afternoon. The 1st Battalion of 900 Guardsmen begin arriving in jeeps with machine guns permanently attached around 9.30, two nights before the weekend. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. Our headline writer this evening was Greg Sanderson. Special thanks to our feature contributors, Jose Carlos Texiera, Stu Levitan, and Dr. Anthony Lizowitz from Yale's Climate Connections. Katie Georgella is our on-air engineer, seamlessly mixing our sounds this evening. Faye Parks produced the newscast, and Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night.